that there was an important operatic activity in Brazil during the 17th and 18th centuries? Did you know that there were opera houses in many cities where European and local artists performed together, including mulattoes, blacks, and women? In this episode, Dr. Rogerio Budas, guitarist and musicologist, and the author of Opera in the Tropics, will unveil for us the rich musical universe of Brazil during the 18th century. Let's start! I'm a soprano and musicologist and the author of the Latin American art song, Sounds of the Imaginations. I have edited 11 books of scores of Latin American and Iberian art songs. I have performed this repertoire around the world and have recorded 11 CDs. I am the founder of the Barcelona Festival of Song, a summer program to study the history and interpretation of Latin American and Iberian art songs in Spanish, Catalan, and Portuguese. The festival arrives at its 18th year in 2022. Good afternoon and welcome to the second season of the Latin American and Iberian Art Zone podcast, this time from the University of California, Riverside, home of the famous Center for Iberian and Latin American Music. Today, I'm very excited to have with us Dr. Rogerio Budas. Rogerio is a Brazilian musicologist and a guitarist who specializes in Luso-Brazilian musical theater and Afro-Iberian musical connections. He is the chair of the music department of the University of California, Riverside. Welcome, Rogerio. Hi, everybody, and thank you very much, Patricia, for this invitation. And uh, it's actually been a pleasure to have you exactly in Riverside, my, the place that I'm, I'm working for, for since 2008. So having you as a research, uh, visiting, visiting research is, uh, is a great pleasure. And thank you. So for me, it is an amazing opportunity to be near to you and to other researchers who are devoted to promote this music of our Latin America and the Iberian Peninsula. So, yeah, let's work on that too. And so I hope that we can... Uh, Uh, have some uh, projects together this, this time. Yeah. Yes, so, but today I would like people, our audience, first of all, to learn a little bit about you. I understand you were born in Curitiba. Right, yes, I'm, I'm Curitibano, I'm from Curitiba, and uh, it was there when I started studying classical guitar many years ago uh, at, the, at the conservatory, which is School of Music and Fine Arts, uh, Escola de Musica e Belas Artes, do Paraná, Curitiba. And after that, um, I graduated, and at the same time, I, I began studying uh, musicology yeah, at the University of Sao Paulo. But so you started as a guitarist, I understand. Exactly, a classical guitarist. And I was always uh, fascinated by the uh, early uh, repertoire for the, for the uh, ancestral instruments, I mean, predecessors of the guitar, which is the vihuela and the lute. And that's kind of what created this bridge Uh, to musicology for me was the repertoire, the guitar, and from the guitar going to early guitar and then early uh, uh, repertoire. So that's interesting because our audiences uh, probably they must be asking, their, how is that somebody 
become a musicologist because you start most of musicologists we start as musicians but what is the thing that ignited the this desire to learn more from historical perspective and become a musicologist well that's really a great question so i, I guess each person has a, has a different story uh, and and there are musicologists who were not musicians first and they they began doing a, a musicology maybe from a music criticism or other areas and then they start to study uh, music uh, seriously but uh, but yeah as, as you're right most of us are, are uh, musicians who become uh, more interested on uh, what is that music about what is that what does does it come from and uh, uh, is that something else there and that was not uh, 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 addressed yet or is that more music like this where does music come from so this type of thing this type of questions uh, demand a research and uh, and also to explain and uh, or, or maybe how is that different in that the music in that place uh, for example in the case of a, of a colonial latin america uh, we know the colonizers they had some type of music and how much of that music made it through uh, Latin America, and uh, did it continue to be the same, or how was it changed? And how about the local music of Latin America when the colonizers arrived? How happened? What happened? So all these questions, really, you are already in the, the domain of musicology when you start doing those asking those questions and answering them. More. So right. is the curious mind? I mean, is the basic requirement for a musicology so this yes it is yeah it's a, a curious mind and also for the i mean for for any for actually any field you know any field science uh, and even the performance the, the, the performance technique uh, technique so yeah the curious mind is always what what propels humans uh, to go forward in in, in finding new things and yeah, open up new territories and uh, yeah and for us as musicians also, we are in the search of new repertoire, always. We are interested in, okay, as you just mentioned, I have this music, there, there is more of these, or where could I find so that ignited this desire to go as a detective to look for the music? Uh, exactly, the, the, and, uh, and sometimes uh, it's also related to the, because as you and I, we... we, we, we uh, we got in contact with the repertoire of uh, vocal music or early music in Latin America, and uh, but through mostly through editions, and then we look at those editions, and then something is not correct here. Something is uh, doesn't make sense here. Uh, where, where this edition comes from? Where the editor got this music from? So and then you go and find the original, or find the, the, an archive, or a, or a manuscript, or. And then you re you realize the music that you were playing that you were singing was not actually the, the, the real one or the, the I mean of course every every time we, we, we use a musical score it is not the real one that was performed uh, 255 years ago it's not we know that uh, uh, in order to to get to that music we needed to have a a, a time machine and then having a, a recording equipment and then record Chopin playing. And then bring it back here to 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 realize how it was. A musical score is just a, a channel or a support or a tool to get some approximation of that. That specific music. So it's like a roadmap. The music scores just give us some hints, but we have to discover the rest. So. Yeah, and we know that uh, we will never never get to the actual sound that was performed before the invention of a. Uh, 
of uh, mechanical or, or uh, re recording uh, devices. Yeah. So this is interesting how we are searching for meaning also. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, because that that's that's another another thing, and also that that changes uh, so our, our the way we approach that. Uh, repertory and then what that music was was made for what was the purpose or the function of that music and uh, many times uh, we have conflicting or contrasting uh, uh, explanations uh, of that specific uh, song for example that was performed in a Jesuit mission uh, in the 1700s uh, what and there's a, a actually a, a very hit, uh, uh, hit, hit, hit debate uh, about uh, about uh, the signification of that music from the point of view of the colonizers of the indigenous people who were singing that music and from the point of view of the colonizers who were bringing uh, 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 that repertory uh, for their purpose of uh, converting those those populations uh, yeah it's, meaning is 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 a is a, uh, one aspect in which musicologists especially in the last 40 years are more and more concerned with. Yes, yeah, so to understand for me personally, I mean to understand myself also, to understand what it means in terms of my identity as a Colombian, as a Latin American, as a person belonging to these so-called peripheries in history. So how I always try to understand how, why the narratives that constructed all this music and from which point of view they were analyzed or, or read at certain points in time. So this is what I'm seeing and now I will land in one of your your many books and research that I fascinated reading your book for many reasons because also it's about vocal music that is something that interests me and people who listen to this podcast. But this book called Opera in the Tropics, in which you analyze the music of Brazil in the 18th century and how the, the social construct of opera in Brazil at that time and how it's entangled with race, with gender, with the whole history of the country. So tell us a little bit about how you got into, because you started as a guitarist, plucked instruments, and now you are in the realm of vocal music. How was this connection? Uh, yeah, this is a really it's, it's a long story, and um, itself. Uh, let, let me let me try to make a connection here with the with the previous work. Of course, opera uh, op in the in the 18th and 17th century, uh, Latin America or Hispanic America or even in Iberian Peninsula, did not have exactly the same meaning as we have for the the word opera today. If you look at the dictionary or if you look at the encyclopedias, it will always uh, define it at, uh, as uh, as uh, a dramatic uh, work uh, with music throughout, from beginning to the end. So completely putting in, in, uh, put, uh, uh, having having music uh, the whole time. So as uh, or sung throughout. Uh, we know that in the in the 18th and 17th century, opera would apply to musical theater in general. So it could be a comedia, it could be a, trage a tragedia, or a or a tragicomedia, or um, yeah, it's 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 a it's the fact that you have a, a theatrical work uh, with some music uh, inserted in that. That, uh, but the the, the book explains how that process uh, took place from those early uh, types of uh, 
of a musical theater up to the opera in uh, in the in the sense the, in the modern sense of uh, sung uh, sung through uh, musical uh, dramatic piece, which is by the end of the book you we get there. Uh, now the book um, explores several types of uh, of musical uh, theatrical uh, genres from the Jesuit theater uh, in the 16th century, late 16th century using uh, Iberian music, using not a music composed specifically for that alto or for that um, that's that commedia, but music that was uh, collected from uh, popular songs that were uh, common in, in the Iberian Peninsula. And then the Jesuits like uh, Jose Dinchetta, they just changed the, the lyrics in order to to provide or to convey a, a sacred uh, meaning. We call that, uh, con that process contrafactum, when you have a popular song and you uh, give a, a, a sacred meaning to that song by changing the lyrics. But the song itself, the, the music continues to be the same. The same. Yes, uh, and then uh, um, after that, and then uh, you have a, um, uh, a use of dances as well. And in, th in those dances, uh, uh, work of uh, Jose Dinchetta clearly stated that many in some instances they were dancing indigenous uh, dances. So he says they dance in the manner of their 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 people. So this is also breaking up many preconceptions because many people who are listening to us now probably they thought. First of all, that there, there is no opera in Latin America because they assigned that genre to Europe most in the general mind of people. So yes, there is opera. And as early as 18th century and before, although the, the definition is different as you are mentioning, but there there is music and there is also mix between these elements from the indigenous and the African populations and European population, so there is already this mix because we also have that assumption that yes, opera came and was pristine, clean from Europe and was reproduced exactly as it was in Europe. And thankfully, it was not because it received a lot of contributions from people who was inhabiting Brazil. Yes, and this happens in all art forms uh, as well. You have these uh, forms or uh, ways of doing or, pra or practices. And then in the, in the in the new environment, you have a a, a a necessity of making that form understandable to the to the local population. It's not just for the the Jesuits; they were not doing theater for the other Jesuits. Of course, they were doing that in in part of, of that. There is a specific uh, repertoire of Neo Latin theater that were specifically for the for the. For their students in their in their school in their colleges and uh, around the, the coast. However, in the theater of, of mission uh, for conversion, they had to be understood. So that's why Tancheta he created uh, 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 musical plays that were in in uh, Portuguese, in Spanish, and in Tupi. So they were trilingual. So in Tupi to too. Yes, exactly. yes. And uh, in other places in Latin America, they also use the local uh, language, like in Chile. Victor Hondon has a work on that, and then in uh, in um, in Mexico in Nahuatl. So so do you have others? This kind of a uh, uh, different languages as a tool of acculturation because they want to convert them. Yes. So uh, as as you mentioned before, then this really plays an enormous role in the in the 
in, we start to have to begin thinking about a, a local uh, local art, local art forms or local practices, which wouldn't happen uh, in uh, in the Iberian Peninsula or did not happen um, to that extent. Now, uh, so bringing back here to the to what you mentioned about uh, not bringing opera as a pristine form, uh, ready-made, and then just for the audiences, that did happen in a couple of times, as you know. Uh, examples of that, but that those was, were exceptions. The the majority of the cases in the regular Casa da Opera or in the regular Casa de Comedias around Latin America, what you had identified as, as opera or as comedia uh, was exactly a musical theater. And uh, comedia is a misleading term. term. It doesn't mean funny, a funny play. Mm -hmm. Comedia means what a play that does not have a tragic ending. Mm -hmm. so, but it doesn't have to be comic uh, the whole time. For example, Metastasio's uh, um, operas, Metastasio's libretti in Italian, when they were translated to Portuguese, they may be called opera or comedia. Or they are translated to Spanish, they may be called also comedia. And that's why in the Casa de Comedias in Buenos Aires or in Mexico or in, in, uh, in Spain, you also have comedias by Metastasio, but Metastasio, we know, he never wrote a comedia <laughs> in the Italian sense, but locally they were called comedia. That's so interesting, and also seeing how the opera, theater, and music, I mean, were used as a tool for converting to Christianized people, to also for controlling politically and economically control of the population. I mean, that was a tool of in the power struggle music yes that's another another interesting thing that um, the in the majority of these casas de opera and casas de comedias they were supported by by the local authorities so that the, the local authorities they had some type of uh, control or say uh, in what was played not not in the sense that they would be uh, inspecting everything uh, in some cases they were they were there was the, the the theater inspector or the police chief that was also responsible for 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 uh, looking what was being played in that specific uh, area. But from the, the musicians and the artists themselves, because they needed that support from the authorities in order to continue to function. Each time they would ask permission to open a Casa de Opera or a Casa de Comedias, they had to tell the, the, the authorities, this is very good for the instruction of the population. How? Make so? So, but what is that instruction? It's to be better, to be more compliant. Uh, system, uh, to be civilized. <laughs> civilized, yes. <laughs> yes, to educate in all aspects of, of, uh, of the, pro I mean, there's the, the civilization project going on uh, uh, in, in the, 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 all the colonizing enterprise. But that civilization project applies uh, in, a, in an uneven way to the colonists themselves and to those they are subjugating, as, as we know. Uh, so, so you have those, all sorts of hierarchies going on and who can, who can uh, uh, rise to the top of the administration and who cannot. And you have a race playing a huge uh, deal in, in that, uh, in that um, equation. And uh, one aspect in which music is uh, interesting or, or the performing arts are interesting is that we see all the, the, the race, uh, how race, race aspects, they, they play an issue in the, in the, in the selection of the, the repertoire and in the, in the, in the 
who who were gonna who were the, the companies or who were the actors and and performers who are playing that specific work, uh, which is a little bit different than in in Europe, so that they could not transplant the whole idea of a of a court theater to Latin America because there were no there were no uh, resources and there were not the all the actors and singers that they had in Europe they were not available. This opened the opportunity for people who would ne we would never see in Europe. Black people, for example, or mulattos on stage. Exactly, that's another point. Uh, although they, there are some recent research that uh, points out that there were black actors in, uh, in uh, especially in Southern Europe, in, in the Comedia dell'arte, for example, there is a research by Emily Wilborn on black actors in Italian Comedia dell'arte in 17th century. And uh, there should, there, there also uh, uh, mentions of, uh, of, uh, of, um, of black actors in or black musicians in the Iberian Peninsula as well, but not the research is not as as advanced as uh, as in Italy. So, however, in the la in in the context of Latin America, that was the norm. That was that was the most the majority of them in the 17th 18th century. They were a mixed race, or they were uh, they were black, and also you have. Um, but the the that's the, where the hierarchy plays out here because the directors of the companies. They were they were um, Europeans, Creoles, Europeans or Creoles also um, born in uh, in the in the continent. So in that, uh, what what we did not have that much in 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 Brazil in in the seventeenth and eighteenth century was uh, Portuguese companies visiting the the country. But they do start to visit in the late eighteenth century. Now it's yeah we're going all sorts of directions here, but. Uh, it's really fascinating. <laughs> but it's very nice because this is just a conversation to yeah. to to help people to understand or to kind of have an uh, enter in a little bit in your mind and in the this wonderful universe of that was the opera in the 18th century in Brazil. Also, you were mentioning that of course race was an issue and also all these conceptions of superiority of certain races and others. So the status of the indigenous and black people in relationship with the status of the human status even of a person at that time was in question. Yes, and that's another interesting point because you have all these hierarchies and also, uh, um, uh, I'll say, containments. So where, where, where is that it's possible for a mixed race um, individual to work or or to perform or so or and also was that the same for a black actor was that the same for a for an enslaved person uh, was that the same for a for a uh, for an european actor so how was it different so i think in terms of spaces of containment ending the arts th those spaces are more flexible than uh, in the in the regular um, in the in the other professions like for example you could not have um, a person of a, of a black ancestry raising up to the point of the administration, but you could have a person of black ancestry raising to the pot, pot, to the to the position of a master, chapel master, for example. So that so the music and the arts they provided a path for that parallel hierarchy in which you have a some type of social climbing going on and some type of uh, individual fulfillment going on that was not allowed in other areas or in other spaces so so in that context as you are describing it music and arts were advancing or 
providing a little space for society to advance in the direction of more freedom and equality and rights for other people. So yeah. Yeah, more in, 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 as important or maybe more important than that is that being in those positions of, of authority or responsibility, they were able to change the system. So that's another point. It's not because they were uh, they were being allowed by the white by, by the white colonizers to do those things. Actually, they worked towards that. There's, there 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 are many historians and that that are working on this uh, issues of uh, it was not the whites or the white colonizers who allowed uh, uh, mixed race and black actors to to thrive or to 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 develop their 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 potential, but those black actors and those uh, mixed race actors were themselves working towards that. So they were working with the system, the judicial system from within in order to change it and in the end uh, to make a better, better uh, life for themselves. So it's a, the, it's an active role of those actors. And in that way, advancing the whole society. Exactly, yes. And also I, I call my attention the fact that women were not allowed to be on stage at certain point in time in operas, but there in, in Brazil, those rules were broken also in a way, and women were allowed to be. How was that? Yeah, and that's like a, a back and forth that goes throughout the colonial period. Uh, we know that in according to the in the Jesuit theater, that was not possible. In the Jesuit theater, it was there were strict rules uh, for that. However, when there was a when there were Jesuits or, or students of the Jesuit college performing. Uh, um, uh, a play in the, in the in the village or something like that was not directly from the supervision of the of the priests in in the college. Those things they did happen. So those those uh, uh, transgressions uh, they do they did happen. And um, and for for a while um, uh, that the, the the rules or the 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 type of restrictions that the, the imposed in the in the in the late 16th or early 17th century, they were they were made more flexible, and you have situations, for example, in the in the mid 18th century, you have the actress uh, uh, actresses, women actresses, singing in uh, in uh, in in um, puppet opera uh, performances in in uh, in Rio, for example. So they were not visible on the stage, but you could hear their voices uh, on the backstage because they were singing. And the puppets were the ones acting, and uh, I, I, also to emphasize how how much um, exchange happened between uh, between Brazil and then uh, the other and the Hispanic uh, world at that time. You had uh, uh, documented uh, evidence of uh, one of those uh, troops going to Buenos Aires or establishing themselves in in Buenos Aires. Uh, with those uh, those women actresses, and that's the, the beginning of a, of, a, of a company, a theatrical company in Buenos Aires, with women actresses from Brazil. Uh, but it, it was puppet theater that time. Wow. And, uh, and also, reading one of your papers called my attention that the importance of the theater made in, in Spanish also, in Brazil, so for a long time. So tell me a little about that. Yes, yeah, Spanish was a, was a language of kind of a language of culture, for the for the Portuguese uh, for 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 some time, for example, even Camões he wrote uh, sonnets in Spanish, and you have several um, um, authors or writers uh, who, who wrote in Spanish also as a, and also the opposite, you know, happened in the in the Middle Ages with uh, with uh, 
uh, Portuguese being a, a court language also in, in Spain. So in the in the 17th century, comedia was the was a uh, Spanish comedia was the main theatrical form uh, in the Iberian Peninsula, not only in Spain but also in Portugal. So Spanish comedia uh, performed in Spanish language was the main type of theatrical uh, uh, form or that that you could um, that you could could be. It could it could be used in um, in uh, functions, for example, um, the the wedding of the kings and then the the birth of a prince. All of those were celebrated with toros or toradas <laughs> and comedias. Not only in also in Brazil, so Spanish comedias and toros. So, so wow! And uh, this was way after the. The Portugal became independent from Spain again. This was in the late 17th and early 18th century. So, uh, and and uh, so the book explained that how this uh, happened. It started to change in the about the 1720s and 30s when uh, people got tired of those Spanish comedias and they started to to uh, to more and more have uh, performances of uh, Italian uh, plays translated to Portuguese and later. Portuguese plays inspired or imitating uh, Italian uh, comedies later by Goldoni or or, or uh, serious dramas by Metastasio, for example. All of them translated to, to Portuguese or uh, created in Portuguese imitating that repertoire. But yes, uh, and it's interesting that, uh, back to the Spanish uh, aspect of this, so and there is a, a, a rep report of uh, festivals for the wedding of, in honor of the wedding of, of a king, a Portuguese king, in the first half of the 18th century from Bahia. And then uh, a while ago, um, a German uh, a researcher he said, no, it was impossible that the, the Brazilian actors they were they were uh, rehearsing or they were speaking in Spanish or they were acting in Spanish. That that could not possible. This pro was probably a Spanish uh, company that company. went to Bahia and so on. And then, actually, then I, I was looking at uh, at uh, at uh, a long poem that describes those festivals, and then it says at some point, and the the local actors they were so good that they even uh, surpassed, excelled, even did the, the, the Spanish in their Spanish uh, diction. They even excelled the, the, the Spanish Spaniards themselves. Oh God! <laughs> that was not possible, of course. But uh, but to see the point of uh, of those uh, descriptions, they was always making it look much better than it was. But it shows that they were local actors, Brazilian yes. actors who were trying or did their best in Spanish. Yeah. So that's interesting, and also how in this theatrical acts or representation there was a mix of music and text, delivered text, and also dances, as you mentioned. So call my attention how, and I always I love to sing lundus, and I know that it comes from this erotic dance, African dance. So all those descriptions that you mentioned of people coming from Europe and seeing how this obscene dance of the lundu was dance in the middle of one of those theatrical uh, operas. Yeah, for us, that is strange, you know, but when you look at the, the theatrical practices at that time, that was common. They do, they did have uh, dances that were foreign dances in the middle of, of a play, and they, they did have dances that were more of the sensual aspect. So the descriptions of several dances in, in Spain and in Portugal, the, even the Chacona was considered mm -hmm. a, a, an Obscene. erotic dance. And uh, <laughs> several of these, uh, 
uh, and the Sarabanda, the Sarabanda too. Uh, now, in um, what what you have then in, in Brazil and in, in, in Hispanic America at that time in the theater is that they use local forms of those. They they're not going to sing the dance the Chacona in in the in the in the in, in that area because nobody knows them. So they're going to put a Lundu or some other dance there. And that's another point in, uh, important here is that those companies. It's not that they had. Um, especially before the 1810s when you have the court uh, a Portuguese court uh, arriving in Brazil but before that this period in the 17th, 18th century up to 1810 the local companies they were singers and actors and dancers like musical theater actors yeah, of today exactly and they were doing a, a, a metastasio opera and they were including dances and they were including uh, spoken dialogues and that was the same person who was doing that. So, for example, and, and even uh, in uh, that also in the popular theaters of Portugal that happened to, in the uh, 1780s, a famous Portuguese actor, Pedro Antonio Pereira, uh, he moved to Rio with his family, with his, his uh, daughter, and he was a very well-known uh, director, writer, and singer, and it seems to be singing at a sort of a... a falsetto or he was a natural castrato we don't know uh, and uh, he was a very good dancer too and wow so all those things so that all those abilities and uh, joaquin alapinha the famous black uh, singer opera singer who went, went to portugal. portugal she was actually well known as, a, as an actress as a, as a spoken actress so a, an actress of spoken theater uh, so, so this is fascinating, uh, Rogerio. I, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are yearning to listen some of that music. So, what would you play for us now? Yeah, from that repertoire, uh, I uh, from the from the 18th, from the from the um, early 19th century, I have one aria from the opera Zaira, mm -hmm. and then uh, which is the, this uh, opera by uh, libretto by, by Voltaire. And it was set to music by several several composers in this specific libretto or, or, uh, of, of uh, Voltaire's play was set to, to music by Marcus Portugal and also by Bernardo José de Souza Queiroz when he was in Rio. In, uh, in Portuguese in, or in, it's in Italian? It's in Italian, yeah. Yeah, because at the time, I mean, the language for the opera was yeah. Italian. And this is a this is already 1809 1810 when the Portuguese court was there already. So this.
We just listen to Frenar Vorreile Lágrima from the opera Zaira composed by the Portuguese composer Bernardo José de Sousa Queiroz between 1809 and 1811. The performers are Rosana Marreco de Orquestra Americántiga under the conduction of Ricardo Bernardes. Before listening to this, you just introduce another element here that is of supreme interest and also make us help us understand the whole universe of Brazil at the time. That was that there is a unique fact in the history of Latin America. I mean, the only country in the Americas that had the court living there for years was Brazil because the King Joao arrived in 1808. I believe. So with all his core escaping from from Napoleon, so he arrived to Brazil with all the core that means bringing musicians, writers, and all the culture that surrounded the court. So this is of paramount importance for the development of culture in Brazil. So tell us about that and how it impacts the construction of or the continuation of the opera in, in Brazil. So the court arrived in 1808 and in Rio was in, in early 1809. And uh, with the court came an uh, uh, um, entourage of artists and poets and uh, all sorts of uh, administrators as well. And, and uh, of course, they tried to replicate in, in Rio what was going on in, in Lisbon. And um, they soon created plans to, to build a new theater because the old, the old theater was considered uh, too small. Uh, but there was a, already a very lively um, operatic culture in the city. So the local singers, they were singing Italian operas, and it's either translated in Portuguese uh, or, or in Italian, uh, but it, not so much in complete operas, in, uh, like sung throughout operas in Italian. That, that didn't happen. That didn't happen as far as we have any historical evidence. However, we do have, for example, in... Um, in um, in uh, preserved uh, manuscripts, uh, examples of operas like uh, Italian in Algeria in um, Barbero Seville, not by Rossini but by by Zielo, uh, uh, and uh, Bar uh, Italian Algeria in, in, in by Rossini, but uh, with uh, with um, uh, the whole text translated in in Portuguese, uh, with the, in the manuscript. So you see how they, they did that in a very interesting and neat uh, neat way. So with the arrival of the Portuguese court, that practice continues, but they already brought uh, a reason to produce a whole spectacles in, in Italian, uh, in Italian opera. And also they brought uh, artists from that who were already, Italian artists who were already in, uh, in Lisbon and Spanish artists, uh, Spanish dancers who were already in, in, in Lisbon. They also all made the, the trip to Rio. That, and that's kind of dynamic between the local company and the uh, newly arrived company creates an interesting scenario in which they are both learning with each other. And that thing that you just mentioned here before about uh, those uh, erotic or sensual dances uh, in, the, uh, in, in the middle of the opera, you have now those Italian actors in the, uh, doing that. <laughs> or you have the Italian actors dancing the rondo. Oh, that's so wonderful, the, the umbigada. Yes, it's, uh, because that they were required to do that. You have the, the, the Portuguese company, the so-called Portuguese company or national company, that was mostly for spoken theater, but was for comedies also, for, 
for a musical theater in a, a comic theater. And you have the Italian company, which was just for Italian opera. And there are three, four of those artists that they, they are working on those, both companies, like the, the Vacani family, family and uh, the, the dancers, the La Combe dancers. Yeah. And what about the printing, the, the editorial, the publishing industry? So, because who, how was, because this is how circulates the music and how it arrives to you today to, to do your research. Uh-huh. So the, the printing was forbidden in Brazil until, until 1808 was when the, the, the Portuguese king arrived there. They finally opened, uh, that's why for some people, the real independence of Brazil began when the court arrived there, because then Portugal became the colony, so to speak, because the, the king was in Brazil. That's right? so interesting, this yeah. sort of contradiction. Yes, and then you have uh, printing houses allowed, and you have banks, and you have uh, the other uh, institutions as well. So music printing only began at that time, at that point there. Before that, you have manuscripts, uh, musical manuscripts, and as a musicologist, uh, I know that the... the uh, they, are, they are stored in some archives throughout the country and in Rio there are specifically uh, in archives at the Biblioteca Nacional and then the School of Music and uh, at the Curia Metropolitana and interesting for the, for the opera for vocal music one very strong archive is the one in Vila Viçosa in Portugal because that was the archive of the family of the king so when the king uh, returned to Portugal they also brought with them a large uh, collection of uh, manuscripts that were being performed in Rio. So they, 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 so they, now it's in, in Portugal. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and the music printing actually begins that. Now it's interesting that this connects also with one of my research on um, one uh, Italian actor and singer and guitar player, mandolinist Bartolomeo Bortolazzi. He was also a pioneer of music printing in, in Brazil. And uh, he was, this Italian guy, he was composing lundons for the guitar and voice. And he was also uh, dancing uh, lundons when in, the, in, the, in the national company. Wow. In some, uh, in some uh, spectacles, yeah. And this is also what you are saying, he was composing lundons for the guitar, etc. It connects with the huge output of now connecting in another century, but I think the influence of it, the, of what you are saying now, this time in and activities at that time, at the beginning of the 19th century, how it impacts later on the huge output of art song composition in, in, in Brazil. That is amazingly huge if you compare it with other countries in Latin America is one of the countries that has more and more variety and I'm just thinking now in this um, Acerbo Hermenelindo Castelo Branco mm -hmm. in Minas Gerais that has thousands and, and thousands of art songs so for the listeners of the program who are interested in art song they that must be interesting too uh, yeah it's part of the, the culture of um, um, parlor music or, or salon music that uh, it's part of the, edu the education of the elite, of the upper classes, to have a piano at home. Uh, Rio was cons considered at the time uh, one of the, the world capitals of, of pianos. Pianos. Because there were so many, but, but, and, uh, uh, and then you have a repertoire that, that has to, uh, uh, 
to be available in order for for all those to that or that that culture also fosters or 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 sponsors a a, a culture of of writing music for the piano and for voice and that and it's and it's not as it seems that then it's the aristocratic music of the upper classes that is there always uh, conveying the views of the elite it's not like that every time because you have this also uh, a repertoire of loon, vocal lundoons they are very very critical in terms of uh, politics and society so there are lundoons that are ex making it really criticizing the economy but on a comic way or in a funny way because lundu has to be funny and they, mm -hmm. they have they, they but they at the same time they use that a venue to criticize society or to criticize um, uh, the politics and um, it's all, all of that. It is not just the culture of the elite in that uh, sense of uh, promoting the, the values of the elite, but also uh, uh, conveying some sort of criticism or social criticism. And now you mentioned the piano, the piano as the instrument of the elite, confined to urban, urban spaces, to the salon. So that I associated that in my mind with the elites, although you are saying that the, the lyrics say that they were also criticizing the establishment, if you could say. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned that that composer was composing for the guitar and I, guitar and voice. So, and the guitar is always, even when you are playing songs for voice and piano, the guitar is always there, it's present because the piano is kind of recreating the harmonies and the ways of of the guitar. Uh -huh. And now, uh, one thing to remember also is that the, the guitar, the six string guitar in the, in the early 1800s was not a popular instrument, was an instrument of the aristocracy, of the upper classes. So, uh, mm -hmm. The guitar that was a popular instrument is the old one with the five double strings, uh, the Portuguese called vi vi uh, viola or other. And also in Hispanic America, in Spanish, you have several versions of guitarilla or uh, guitars with double strings and throughout Latin America. So that instrument continued to be a popular instrument uh, in several, several different versions around the, around the, uh, around the continent. But the six string guitar begins as uh, an elite instrument and this brought was, by the people with by, the court and by the by the, by the Italian and uh, French and, uh, and artists that uh, settled in, in Rio. However, during that century, something very interesting happens is that more and more uh, um, uh, more and more people not from the elites but from the lower classes from the lower class, including enslaved individuals started to use the guitar to convey their 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 um, uh, art uh, so, so to create new types of music new types of forms or playing the music of the Europeans in a different way which is exactly what we have with Shoro. Shoro is this musical practice that develops in Rio in the 1850s 60s uh, as a, a different way of performing European waltzes Scottishes uh, mazurkas and um, also uh, quadrilles, all, all sorts of piano music or p music that was played on, on, the, on the classical guitar at, at, at before then. Now they are doing this with the guitar, six string guitar, uh, in a, played in a different way with, uh, with um, Afro-Brazilian rhythms, syncopations and the cell, rhythmic cells 
that are not uh, that are associated with the, some representation of blackness. So there is a little bit of representation there as well. Uh, and uh, uh, cavaquinho, which is this mm -hmm. small guitar, four string guitars, and flute. So the guitar, cavaquinho, and flute is the basic cell of uh, of the choro. Which that is we this. can, I mean, if our listeners today go to to mm -hmm. Rio, they can go to Rodo di Choro. Uh -huh, yeah, and then you have a percussion added to that uh, later in the century. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is fascinating. Would you like to share with us another song or piece? Well, I'm going to share you now one example of this type of uh, in change or interaction happening with uh, with uh, European music and local rhythms and local instruments in the 17th century. I have uh, this research on uh, Gregorio de Matos, which was a poet of the 16, uh, late 16, uh, late 17th century, and uh, he, he he didn't leave any music like musical scores. But he, he wrote several poems in which he describes musical forms, describes some types of dances, and he also, the same way the Jesuits were doing contrafactum uh, from secular to sacred, which is a kind of a parody, he was also doing parodies, so getting Spanish songs and putting a new text in Portuguese that makes sense to, that, uh, to, that, to the, his friends in Bahia, or, or getting a Portuguese song and then doing a, a new text um, uh, also that, with that new context. So this example here is uh, the song Marisapolos. Uh, it's a very famous Spanish uh, song. However, there I, I collected a, a Portuguese version of this song for the guitar, for the five-string guitar from the 17th century. And I uh, included or I adapted the Gregorio de Matos text to that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a, a, the text by a Brazilian poet uh, as a parody to a, a song, a, a Spanish song, from which uh, there is a, a very um, um, a important source in, for the guitar in, in Portugal. So it becomes Mari Nicolas. And Who is performing in this version? I, I'm, I'm playing the guitar. Oh! My friend uh, Ademir uh, Junior is, playing, is singing. Yeah. So let's listen to okay. it. Empurrado por umas sonoras no ano de tantos 
We just listened to Marie Nicholas, a traditional Iberian song with poem by Gregorio Gimatus. The singer was Ademir Mauricio Silva and on the guitar, Rogerio Budas. It's so interesting. I want to talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> yes, this is an interesting repertoire. Oh, and the, 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 um, the thing about Gregorio Gimatus is that he also describes dances uh, he saw in Bahia and his, he was dancing himself. His brother was, was dancing, so he describes one of them. His brother was dancing with a... With the with the ladies of the, the women from the from the Amparo uh, Brotherhood, and the, we know that the, that brotherhood was for of uh, mixed race uh, or mulattos, so they were the, this type of um, 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 interracial uh, event going on there. So very interesting. So I wouldn't like to end this conversation never because I'm learning a lot. I'm enjoying a lot uh, talking to you but i would like our listeners to read your book that was published by oxford university press called opera in the tropics music and theater in early modern brazil by my guest rogerio budas i also would like to remind people that this program is brought to you thanks to the contribution of the Center for Iberian and Latin American Music of the University of California Riverside and by the support of the Barcelona Festival of Song, a summer program devoted to study the history and interpretation of Latin American and Iberian art song and by Mundo Arts Publications. So we hope you come back to listen to the second season of this podcast and Thank you very, very, very much, Dr. Rogerio Budas, for all this wisdom and this information that you have shared with us and for your work that is so important for the preservation of our heritage. Well, thank you, Patricia, for this invitation. It was really a pleasure. So, something that you would like to say before leaving to last words? Uh, well, you can find the, these recordings on, on uh, YouTube. So, so we have our CD in uh, uh, Banza, which is uh, and uh, the title is uh, Music and uh, uh, Iberian and African Music, uh, Iberian and African Brazilian Music in the 17th Century. This is the the whole CD is there available, and there is also one that maybe you would like to to listen to 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 find uh, to find more about uh, the work of the Jesuit specialist José Dinchieta in Brazil. There was this beautiful recording by the ensemble Continents Paradisi, which is called Mil Suspiros Dio Maria. I, I wrote the, the liner notes and also provided the, the, the transcriptions for them to perform some of these uh, songs that uh, the Jesuits, they used in their conversion uh, work in, in, in Brazil. So if you are interested. Yes, I'm very interested as I think the listeners are too. So thank you, thank you very much. And we will invite you again. Okay, thank you. <laughs>
subscribe to gain access to our free resources and consider making a donation to ensure our future. Muchas gracias. Obrigada.